You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Luke Westby, a programmer at Struction Site who's now done professional web development in C Sharp, JavaScript, Elm, and most recently, Rust. We talk about some of the differences between Rust and these other languages, and in particular about the experience of doing functional programming in Rust. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, functional programming in Rust. All right, Luke, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So you are someone who is in the unusual position, I guess I'm also in this Venn diagram, of having done JavaScript professionally, and then also afterwards having done Elm professionally for multiple years, and then also now having done Rust professionally for a number of years. I guess I can't say I've done Rust professionally for a number of years, but I have like spent a lot of time with it on a side project, which is now my day job also. So like you've even to the point where you've given at least one talk about JavaScript at a conference, and then I think you've given multiple, definitely given multiple Elm talks, and at least one Elm conference talk. You were the co-organizer of ElmConf, in fact. Assistant organizer. Okay, sure. <laughs> and now you've given a talk at RustConf last year. I've had some pretty different experiences with like JavaScript and Elm and Rust. I'm curious in particular about your thoughts about like a meme that I've heard is like you can do functional programming in Rust. Sure. And having had a background in Elm, I've personally and like I tried doing that and I didn't have a great experience. And I now I'm like, I'm full bore embar- like embrace the imperative when I'm writing Rust. So what do you think about that? I have also given my best attempts to do functional programming in Rust, you know, capital TM, do functional programming. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, it, it has really made me appreciate the way that garbage collection kind of lends itself to the ergonomics of Elm in particular. I guess that's my main functional experience. A little bit of Haskell. Yeah, I, I guess like, especially when it comes to sharing things, like having a data structure that returns like multiple pointers to something like in Rust, it's like, uh oh, now we got to like, do like an RC or something like that, like rat or an arc to wrap it up. Whereas uh, yeah, I remember the first time I did that I was making I don't even remember what the data structure was. But like, I was just like, I want to return this thing from this function. And it's going to have two of these in there. Like I got this thing, and I want to put it in both positions and borrow checkers like no, no, no. Yeah, you can't just do that. You need to but yeah, if you have a garbage collector, that's a trivial thing to do. And if you don't, then you suddenly need to like opt into you know reference counting and stuff. Yes. In my experience with functional programming, you end up writing like a lot of pipelines where you're tr- taking a bunch of data over here and transforming it into something else by writing functions and piping them. You definitely get a little bit of that experience from Rust iterators. It's a really nice API. I like it a lot. Something I run into a lot with functional programming, doing those kind of transformations is... Uh, kind of nested transformations where you've got, you know, your mapping and your andenning or binding or what have you. You hit a point where you need to go in and take the thing you're mapping over and do something to that as well. So you're, you're inside a closure and you're doing another little mini pipeline inside of that closure and then it, it all comes back and you're sharing data across those contexts. That, it's not something I love to do in Rust. <laughs> Moving across closure boundaries is just not so simple. Yeah, especially because like a lot of the time you end up with like a reference to the thing like yeah. inside of it. Yeah, I found that I was just like, and this was kind of early on in my uh, Rust learning experience, coming off of uh, you know mostly doing Elm and Haskell, at No Red Ink. I wasn't super familiar with with Rust itself and what the borrow checker was trying to do, and I was trying to stick to my old habits, and so I I was just blasting everything with move, putting move everywhere, cloning everything. Somehow still not getting it to work. Yeah, I've definitely had that. So Rust closures look like lambdas in like other languages, like, you know, like in Elm or, or even in JavaScript. Like they'll look like, oh, this is just like an anonymous function. But they don't behave that way at all once you get anywhere past like a trivial example. Like if you're just like, oh, hey, here's a map. It's like, cool, this works about the same way. Neat. Now, in retrospect, having had like more in-depth experience looking back at like a lot of these, oh, you can do functional programming and Rust things, the examples are pretty trivial. And then as soon as you do something non-trivial, 
it's like actually hang on hang on this is not <laughs> like the ergonomics are now quite different mm-hmm. i haven't talked to anybody else who's run into this yet but like so i for the rock parser i did it in like a parser combinator style in rust and it worked up to a point but eventually when i was like you know a couple thousand lines of code into it i got to a point where i tried to add one more piece of logic to the parser and the rust compiler was like compiler recursion limit reached like you cannot do this anymore (laughs) just stop and so i had too many higher order functions like nested inside of their higher order which if you're making a parser combinator like that comes up that's kind of the point that's the style and it worked fine up to a point and then it was just like you just can't do this anymore and the workaround that i ended up going with was i discovered that this was a a quirk that was unique to Rust closures in the Rust type checker. And so what I did was I found that if I took some of my functions and just rewrote them, changing nothing else, but turning them into a macro, mm-hmm. it worked fine because they were like automatically inlined. And then like they, they weren't interacting with the type system anymore. It was just like, we'll take this code and like stick it in there directly. And even if the closure would have gotten inlined, it was just the type checker part that was breaking on that. So I just like went around and macroized a bunch of functions. And then I was like, okay, now it works. And then I kept adding more to the parser. And I ran into it again. I was like, oh, got to macroize some more of these. Again, that's just like not something in, even in a language that's not designed for FP like JavaScript, I've never run into something like that before. Yeah. I can't claim to have hit that recursion limit reached. I suspect that's kind of like unique to parser combinators. I wouldn't imagine that if you were doing something. And also I should note that there's another, I found out about this from Bodil Stoka. She wrote an article about how to do parser combinators in Rust. And she wasn't trying to solve this problem, but there was a solution to another problem that she noted where you can just like box something and like do more heap allocations. And then it solves another problem. And I think it would have also solved this problem, but I was like, I don't want a bunch of heap allocations in my parser if I can avoid it. So I didn't want to go down that road. I guess like that is somewhat emblematic of my overall experience in the sense of it's like, yeah, it works fine in small examples, but as soon as I get into bigger stuff, I just start running into stuff that I'm not used to running into. I guess in a garbage collected language, basically. Mm-hmm. And it kind of made me appreciate, that, like like you said, that functional programming really kind of expects you to have garbage collection in order to do it nicely. Yeah. It can be really frustrating to try to use a language in a way that is different from the way it was intended to be used. You know, I mean, that, that seems almost tautological in a way. But yeah, like trying to fight Rust was designed to be used a particular way, and that way is not pure functional programming. So trying to fight it and force it to do those things is going to give you some headaches. That's been my experience with JavaScript as well, even though it's a little bit it's a little bit easier to approximate the Elm experience, for instance. It's just not it's not the same. There's no way to keep the edge cases from from eventually leaking in. So a thing that I know people do in game programming when they're doing game programming in a garbage collected language like JavaScript or like C Sharp or something like that. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes there's a technique where you're sort of imitating manual memory management by pre-allocating some giant array of just slots. And then you're just going to like put things in the in the array and take them out manually. And it's kind of like you're doing, you know, malloc and free. Right. But yeah, like the the ergonomics of doing things in that way are not going to be as as nice as like doing things like Rust, for example, where you have like the borrow checker telling you when you've you know messed certain things up or not. Granted, if you're doing like a specifically like a pool allocator, I actually don't think Rust can be much help with that. And from what I've seen, like if you're doing that type of like you have a big pool of things and you want to like add to and remove from them. It seems like you use the same techniques in Rust that you do in like C, C++ just because mm-hmm. the borrow checker can't really help with that. It's sort of <laughs> beyond what it can help with. But I've definitely seen like Zig comes to mind as a language that I don't know if you've done any Zig. I haven't. So Zig is, it doesn't have a borrow checker. They sort of have other techniques for trying to help you out with memory management. And one of the things that I appreciate that I miss in Rust, that I wish Rust had some equivalent way to do this, is testing allocators. So the way that this works is like when you're running your Zig tests, it swaps in this alternate implementation of like default allocator that does things like it checks for memory leaks, it checks for... Oh. Yeah. So like at the end of your test, you can say like, if you forgot to deallocate something, it'll just like tell you about that. And I think there's also something built in for like use after freeze where like it after you free something, it will write like some 
a hard coded pointer into there that says like, okay, this was a, this was free to something like that. And then if you try to access it again, like it'll, you know, yell at you. I may be misremembering that one, but definitely the like, you know, did I forget to deallocate something thing is, is really nice. And in Rust, obviously the, the first class story is like, well, you know, what are you doing manually allocating and deallocating memory? Don't do that. <laughs> but that's the story for safe Rust. But of course there's also unsafe Rust, which sometimes, you know, like there's a reason there's an unsafe keyword in the language is that like safe Rust just can't literally cannot do certain things. Mm-hmm. And so if you find yourself needing to do a thing like that, which spoiler alert comes up a lot, if you're making a programming language and, <laughs> and like neat, you're like, I'm compiling the machine code, the Rust code needs to interface with the machine code. Like we're not going to compile to Rust. That'd be super slow. So you have to talk to the machine code that involves a lot of unsafe Rust. And there's just no help there. Like in the way that there is with Zig, it's like, you're on your own, you know, you're doing the, the dangerous thing. You know, we don't have tools to help you out for this. Yeah. I wonder if you could maybe put it together yourself. You know, you can set the global allocator in Rust. Maybe you could use, you know, an attribute flag to check if you're in tests. And, you know, in that case, use gem allocator and then turn on gem allocator in your tests. But it's obviously not the same. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying. Like, if the thing is not like designed with your intentions, in mind, then it's going to be difficult. Two thoughts on this. One is I totally agree. And I'm actually about to try out doing something like that. One thing that made me hesitate doing that is that as I understand it, I haven't verified this experimentally yet, but Rust will run all of your tests in parallel. And if you change the global allocator, that will be true for all of the tests that are running in parallel, Ah. which means that if I get like something, you know, wasn't like freed properly, we could have race conditions where it's like, well, actually the count was correct for this test, but not for that test, which finished running, you know, before this other test. So I think what I'd have to do is basically give up on test parallelism if I want to do that and just say like all these tests have to run in serial and then we can do the checks after each test, which should work. The only other theory that I had was doing something along the lines of like, at the beginning of each test, trying to like set a thread local flag for like, hey, I'm doing allocations for this test now. And then like having the global allocator read from a thread local. And then maybe that'll work. But I don't know. I'm not like super optimistic. That seems like definitely less reliable than like running the test in serial. But then, of course, from running the test in serial, they're going to run slower. So, yeah, I don't know. I imagine a programming language needs quite a few tests. Yes. <laughs> uh there's a lot of tests for a lot of this stuff. That actually brings up another interesting topic. So like one of the things I realized is that, so Zig has this really cool design decision that Rust does not. And it kind of brings up a, a more general trade-off that I think is pretty interesting, which is, so in Zig, although it is possible, it's like culturally not really done to use a global allocator at all. Like, the way that all the libraries are designed is like, if you want to do heap allocations, you have to pass in an explicit allocator and then that allocator. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like that one does the allocation for you. So what's super cool about this is that if you decide at some point after you've like made your whole thing, I want to like arena allocate this whole chunk of my program. It's no problem. You're just like, right at the beginning, pass in an arena allocator. Great. Everything in there is going to use that. And also everything they all call and also everything that like is done on a third party package. That's like all of that is just no problem at all. Whereas like in Rust, that could have been true. Like it could have been a convention that just like, yeah, you just pass allocators everywhere. Like Zig does. That's not a language thing. That's just a API design thing. And then that would also be true in Rust. But that's not the choice. Like Rust just isn't designed that way, which means that, I mean, like we've tried to literally do that in the compiler in some places. We're like, I want to arena allocate this. And that's a big rewrite. <laughs> it's not just like pass in an arena. It's like, okay, now we need to switch to Bumpalo for this and that. Yep. I know there's a plan to make this standard library data structures more parameterizable on allocators, but still all of the third-party libraries you're using are probably just going to use the default ones anyway. And there's also not any way to swap out like, hey, for this branch, use a different global allocator. It's just like, nope, there's one global static allocator and that's what you get. Mm -hmm. So doing that stuff is just a lot easier in Zig than in Rust, not because of any language decision, just because of like how the standard library is designed and like culturally what the ecosystem expects. It's an interesting, like highlighting example of how an early design decision like that when the community is relatively small then goes on to 
define something so cross-cutting that that way. Yeah, no kidding. I also think like there's probably an aspect of this that comes from like Rust's, I don't know if it's fair to call this a desire, but certainly like a like one of the things that Rust clearly is intending to do is to be some level of familiar to C++ programmers. Because like the original version was like written in OCaml, then like the syntax and like a lot of the stylistic stuff looks a lot more C++ like than OCaml like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think like in C++, you do have like a global allocator. You don't have to pass allocators around a lot. And I wonder how much of the design for that comes from just kind of this assumption of just like, well, that's, we want to look like and feel like a much safer C++ and be, you know, familiar in some ways to C++ programmers. Or it might've just been as simple a matter of like, nobody thought of that, you know, <laughs> like nobody considered the possibility of like, what if we just pass allocators everywhere? Right. But I mean, if you do pass allocators everywhere, like, there's definitely some ergonomics cost to that in the sense of like, yeah, it's an extra argument to like a lot of functions, like maybe even most of them. But at the same time, there's an ergonomics benefit there too. (laughs) If you ever decide that you want to do like different allocation strategies in different parts of your program, which is a really valuable thing from a performance perspective, but it just gets a lot harder if you're not passing those things around. Right. So I'm kind of reminded of like uh, just thinking about these like API decisions and stuff, Mm -hmm. going back to like functional programming, a lot of the ergonomics that I like love about Elm come down to API design and like all the APIs being designed in like a functional style and especially like standard library and like ecosystem conventions around those things. It's like everybody's kind of like 99% on the same page. Like there's some differences here and there, of course, but like everything is done in this functional style. Whereas my memory of using JavaScript was that, and like trying to do a functional style in JavaScript was that if I wrote all my own code, I could maintain a functional style. But as soon as I went into the package ecosystem, it's just like, that's not what's out there. (laughs) It's like people are not building with your, you know, functional sensibilities in mind. They're building for normal JavaScript, which is imperative. Yeah. You have to kind of curate a subset of of packages that that mostly conform to what you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, or I mean, at least what I remember doing was just like, if it's something that's sufficiently complicated, and like, there isn't a functional version of it, I'm just like, all right, we're we're going imperative for this part. Sure, (laughs) That's it, you know. But yeah, I mean, it really does feel pretty different to me when like the whole ecosystem is kind of on board with that. A Rust equivalent of that, I guess, is thinking about performance with like, in the whole ecosystem. Like, I definitely didn't get the sense that in JavaScript, or really in Elm, that like, making a package run as fast as possible was really like a a top of mind goal. Yeah. But in Rust, it really is. I mean, like, it seems like that's the default is like anybody who publishes a a crate that gets any kind of significant usage, people care a lot about performance and will open issues about, you know, here's how to make this faster and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, Elm didn't have like a benchmarking tool until several years in when Brian Hicks built uh, Elm Benchmark. Whereas... Benchmarking is built right into cargo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's largely a cultural thing. I mean, I guess like, you know, a big part of the reason that people use Rust is they want stuff to go really fast. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like spreads out into the community and like the package ecosystem, which on the one hand is cool. But on the other hand, I definitely, at least personally, when I write Rust, I am pretty aware of how much time I'm spending getting that performance. Like, it's not free. It's not like, oh, I just write Rust the same way that I would write Haskell or something. And, well, okay, bad example, because, you know, functional versus imperative. I write Rust the same way I would write Node.js, let's say. Right. And it's just a lot faster. And I mean, granted, you know, it is going to be lower overhead, but there's definitely a lot of like, I feel that Rust gives me a tool set to write really fast code, Mm -hmm. but I still have to choose to use it. Right. Yeah, you do have to ask the question, like, is it fast enough? Like, does it really matter if my web server route is returning JSON, like, you know, 100 nanoseconds faster? Probably not. It's probably okay to do a bunch of clones here. That's fine. Absolutely, yeah. Like, network is a good example where, like, you're going to have a number of milliseconds of response time that is just dominated by the fact that you're using a network. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, this is a speed of light problem. Like, you cannot get it down below a certain threshold because even if all your server did was just blast bits as fast as possible with no processing at all, it still takes time to travel over the wires. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm I'm actually kind of curious about like your experience with rust and like 
how much do you find yourself doing a lot of performance optimization stuff and like this has to go super fast versus like I'm basically using Rust as like a pretty nice imperative language that has a lot of nice features and an ecosystem, but I don't actually need to like squeeze every last drop of performance out of it to achieve my goals. Yeah, I mean, where I work, structured site, we use Rust for the type system and for the constraints that the uh, compiler puts on you for the, you know, the ecosystem and the tooling. The fact that Rust is usually very fast is great for us, but it was not the most important consideration by any means because we're, we're using it to build you know, web applications, web services. You've got all that time that's dominated by the network. You've got time that ha- just has to be spent deserializing and serializing requests and responses. It's heavily IO bound, all the stuff that we do in, in a web service. So not a whole lot of consideration goes into performance. We hire people with all different uh, levels of experience with Rust, including you know none. Being able to just like clone a thing when you can't deal with the borrow checker is, I think you know, that's an important part of being able to ramp up. You know, Clippy will give you advice a lot of the time too, and that's kind of cool. Yeah, like this is an unnecessary clone, you can just get rid of this. Yeah, but we don't expect anybody to know that beforehand, especially at first. So not really a big deal for us. So I'm curious, like, so you've done, uh, backend programming, at least in like Haskell, Rails, Rust, any other languages? I worked on one Node.js microservice at a previous job, and then I've done uh, .NET as well. Okay, so that's actually a pretty good spectrum of like different backend alternatives with different trade-offs. I guess like one I also don't have any experience in is uh, Go, what would compare it with. But I'm curious, so like comparing like .NET, I'm guessing that was C Sharp? C Sharp. Yeah, okay. So C Sharp, Node, Rails, and Rust, and Haskell. So that's five different like backends. Like, how do you think Rust sort of stacks up against those for like specifically backend web app development? Oh wow. That's a broad question. I think I mean Yeah, I mean so, so maybe we could talk about like things like type system, compile times, and just like, I don't know, overall learning curve, maybe. That's like three metrics to compare it on. Yeah. I think the defining thing across all of those is type systems. Uh-huh. Honestly, as like a very like as somebody who's very focused on like the practical aspects of software development, just want to you know, I, I want to deliver the, the feature and do it well. Like a big benefit of having those type systems is the tooling that comes with them. Like being able to tab complete most of your your endpoint is like is a huge uh, productivity boost. We have a Rails application as well. I find when I'm working on stuff in the, on the Rails side, I am spending quite a lot of time just like looking up the structure of the thing that I'm supposed to return mm. or the shape of the arguments that I'm supposed to pass in. And I know there are, there are tools that you can use to improve upon that with, with Ruby now, but we just, we don't have them installed. We didn't have them at Norad Inc. at the time. Yeah, I mean, being able to just type, you know, capital R response, colon, colon, and then command space and see the, the things that you're supposed to, to do in order to return the JSON response with the right status. It's like having an external brain. I don't have to memorize these APIs. That's huge. The tooling that comes that you can get from having a type system. And then, of course, the, the safety that, that comes with them at runtime as well. You know, we haven't done a lot of measuring, but my sense is that the number of bugs that we deal with on the Rust side, you know, things like forgetting to check nil, way less on the Rust side than on the Rails side. Sure. Are you using um, TypeScript? We use a little TypeScript on the front end. So I'm curious about that experience because, I mean, obviously, like TypeScript on the front end versus TypeScript on the back end, like there's a lot in common. There's some differences, I assume. But like, I'm curious about, I don't know, your experience with the reliability that you get out of TypeScript compared to like Rust or C Sharp or Haskell. It's hard for me to speak to. We we try to put as much into Elm as we possibly can. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and so I, I guess in that sense, I don't really have a lot of complaints to register with with the TypeScript type system. So the front end is like mostly Elm and then some TypeScript. Well, to be forthright, we have we have a React code base, which is a mixture of JavaScript and TypeScript, and then everything new that we've been working on, and we've been building it with Elm, and we're trying to migrate stuff over. A story I've heard before. Yes. <laughs> Okay, cool. So I'm curious about this because like something that I thought about in terms of like backend languages, in terms of like comparing Rust and Haskell and 
TypeScript, I guess. So I don't personally have experience with TypeScript. I do have some experience with Node. And I've also had some experience with like type JavaScript, but it was Flow, not TypeScript. I know there's some differences there, but I've always felt that, and part of the reason that I wanted to start making Rock was that it didn't seem like there was anything in this sort of, what to me is like the sweet spot of what I'm looking for, which is A, like I, I really want to do the functional programming style and have really good support for that at the language level. But B, I also want it to be that the runtime performance is really good and especially that the compile time performance is really good and that like the error message quality is really high like when you get a compile error so rust is like pretty famously good at like having nice compile error messages mm-hmm. well i'm curious what you think about this i've always thought of rust as like second best and elms are the best but i don't know what do you think about that i think that assessment reflects my experience i think the reason for that is uh Elm's type system is a little bit simpler. That certainly helps. <laughs> a more correct statement would be it's a lot simpler. <laughs> yeah, for sure. In our Rust backends, we use a web server framework called Warp, which allows you to compose type-safe APIs using the type system. And it does something similar to what the iterator API also does, where it's like nesting types inside of other types to build up very large types. Those error messages having to do with those can really throw you for a loop. Are you using uh, async Rust? Yes. I don't know what, what it's like today, but like a couple of years ago, I tried doing that. And what I found is like, if I did something wrong, I could very easily just get a full page of error. Like like the one error is just like, <laughs> I don't know if that's still true. I think it's greatly improved. Okay, cool. Nice. I definitely appreciate that, like the challenge of making error messages really nice that specifically have to do with like lifetimes and stuff is like a whole different challenge than... Yeah, if you have like a really simple type system like Elms. Yeah, none of this at all to discredit the effort that has gone into making Rust's errors the beautiful joy to work with that they are. They're incredibly helpful. I love the uh, error message catalog. This is such a, like a, I don't know, this just like lights things up in my brain. I love the error message catalog, and I love that when you get a compiler error, you can click in your ID, you can click you know, E022 or whatever, and you click it, and it takes you to a web page to explain what happened and give you an example. That's amazing. It's so thoughtful with regard to the people who are using the, using the tool. Yeah, I did wonder why, I have a theory, but I haven't asked anyone about this, of like why they use error message codes, whereas like Elm compiler will just like link directly to the Elm website. Yeah, I don't know. So my theory is that I have heard that Rust's implementation or like the main implementation is pretty careful to be sort of like following a spec, so to speak, and like basically trying to be designed such that other people can implement their own Rust compiler if they want to. Oh. And I think that maybe that's part of it is like wanting to not couple it to the current infrastructure and URLs such that like theoretically, if someone wants to like make their own error message catalog of like, here's like explanations for all these things they can, and they can still use the same like Rust C binary. I'm not sure though. That's just a theory. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I imagine you could also like use the existing compiler and maybe build an editor extension that extends that behavior to link to, like maybe you want to make your own catalog that has more examples and goes more in depth than the existing one. You could layer it on top of it that way. I could see that, yeah. That makes sense, yeah act as a layer of abstraction. It's definitely a big deal. I mean, yeah, speaking of like why Elm has an easier time of making nice error messages, probably my two biggest pain points for Rust, one is definitely compile times. That's like been my biggest complaint for a long time to the point where like I, if I could wave a magic wand and just be like, I know Rust has like millions of dollars in funding. If I could just be like, all of this money goes to making the compiler faster (laughs) until it's like, builds are always milliseconds uh-huh. like i would just wave that wand immediately i just i don't care like nothing else matters compared to that. Like, it's, it's all like it's like oh this thing is now a const function aren't you excited like no i want the compiler like two orders of magnitude faster <laughs> like i don't know why it's not treated as an emergency but anyway that's a i, I have like a whole rant about this but <laughs> the second biggest complaint i would have is like the frequency with which I find myself just like staring really hard at a compiler error message, trying to figure out why the compiler thinks that. And when I was beginning, that happened all the time. It was like really common. I would just be like, 
I understand that there's a problem. I do not understand what the problem is. <laughs> I have no idea how to fix this. Try, I don't know. Let's try cloning something. And maybe yeah. that'll fix it. That got me a long way. But like now that I have a much more accurate mental model, it makes it all the more frustrating. I think when sometimes I'm like, okay, I see what the compiler is saying. I actually have the vocabulary. I understand what it's saying about like, you know, this thing does not live long enough. Like I know what that means. I know why like, okay, I can imagine like right here, this goes into scope right here. It's going to have to drop it. If it didn't do that, it'd be a use after free. I get it. Mm-hmm. But still sometimes the compiler will say, no, this doesn't live long enough because of this. And I'm like, I disagree. I think it should <laughs> live long enough. You know, like, A, like I'm probably wrong. I'm probably just missing something, right? But I also know that like type checkers in general and the borrow checkers, no exception, are inherently conservative where like they, they in some sense, one of the innate downsides of a type checker is that it, in some cases will rule out a program that could work, mm-hmm. but like the way that they're designed in order to be sufficiently fast and, you know, yada, yada, they're just going to say no when in fact it could possibly work. And I'm always just like, is this a borrow checker bug or is this a thinking of it wrong? And, but then that, that's not the real problem. The real problem is just like, I'm like, I don't know how to work around this other than like making performance worse and like, you know, just cloning stuff. Yeah, there's always box leak. Put it out there forever. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. You can potentially leak some memory. Yeah. yeah. Or if you're like super, you know, the other way you can go with that is you're like, if I really am confident that I'm right and the compiler is wrong, is I can just be like, well, we're switching to pointers and then we'll do like unsafe reads and writes, you know. But like, I super don't want to do that <laughs> if I can avoid it because I've definitely had to deal with bugs associated with that in cases where it was unavoidable. And that's just like, those bugs are in a totally different category in terms of how long they take to fix and like how painful they are to to deal with. Yeah, but like, I don't feel as bad about that one as I do about the compile times in the sense that like, I feel like that's the price of admission for Rust. Like in order for Rust to succeed at its goals of like, you can make reliable code that runs really fast and gives you a lot of control over, you know, memory layouts and performance and stuff. Yeah, I think sometimes I'm going to have to deal with a borrow checker error that I don't understand and like that I just sit there and stare at for a long time. (laughs) And like that slows me down, but that's what I signed up for. The compile times one frustrates me a lot more just because it seems like that should be fixable. Rust is written in Rust. Rust's whole point is to go really fast and the compiler goes really slowly. Mm -hmm. Like there's no excuse. It's not like, oh, this is just like, It has to be this slow because it's a monomorphizing borrow checker. Let me give you an example. I'm going to try not to devolve into my like Rust compile times rant. (laughs) Okay. I'm trying real hard here. So in Rock, we pretty early on identified that like our compilation pipeline as it stands today is dominated by two things. One is LLVM code generation and the other is linking. So if you do like Rock check, which just type checks, doesn't try to build it and run it, that is a lot faster, like astronomically faster than if you do like rock build to actually produce a binary. So Rust is in the same boat. That's why like cargo check is a lot faster than like cargo run or cargo build. Mm -hmm. But like when I'm running tests, it has to build. It has to build in order to run the tests. So like that's where I feel the compile time pain the most often is like when I run like run my tests, I don't know, is that your experience? Like running tests is a lot slower than just like, you know, using getting type checking errors and stuff. I wonder if our code base is maybe not big enough to experience that particular problem. I find that running the test takes about as long as like waiting for the server to recompile and, and run. Okay, so I remember when that was the case <laughs> in the yeah. Rock code base, but it's not the case anymore. Now it's like several seconds to run like any one test. Oh yeah. Oh okay. No, we're in the same boat then. Yeah, it takes a few seconds. Yeah, so it's not like minutes, but it is like. I mean, what I'm used to is like Elm test where I just say Elm test enter and it runs all the tests in like a second (laughs) in the entire code base, not just like just this one. It's like, okay, here's the answer. And, you know, like a couple seconds might sound like I'm, you know, complaining about nothing, but it's like that really adds up, especially when it comes to like, there's some number of seconds. I don't know what it is, but like where I don't want to sit and stare at the screen, I want to just go check my email or something. And like just that pull to like go context switch like is constant when I'm debugging tests in Rust. I guess if I really think about it, I guess it is the case that I find myself making bigger and bigger changes at once before going through that that part of the dev loop. Yeah, I definitely do when I can. Unfortunately, a lot of the times like I'm just like, yeah, this 
I, I just need to like, this is a behavior problem. It's not a, you know, like do the types fit together problem. And to be fair, I found that at least in the types of compiler development that I'm doing, there's a lot more of that than there is just like with web app development. I found that much more often it's the case that like, if I can get the types to line up, like I'm probably fine. And if I didn't, it's almost certainly because I did the database query wrong, like on the back end. Whereas here, there's just a lot more of like, I just got to run the test to see if my stuff worked at all. Mm-hmm. Getting the types lining up is like only the beginning. Okay, so in the rock code base, LLVM code generation and linking are like dominate compile times. And that seems to also be the case with Rust, although maybe monomorphization is also a big deal there. But the rock compiler also monomorphizes. So it's not like we're not doing that same kind of work. Mm-hmm. But I have noticed that over the years, I have not heard anyone in the rust core team talking about the like very obvious solutions to this very obvious bottleneck which is have an alternate backend that doesn't use llvm like for development Hmm. and do your own linking that doesn't use like the system linker in cases where that's feasible it's not always going to be feasible depending on like you know what what your like third-party library situation is or whatever but like this is what zig does this is what jai does you can make a backend that just goes straight to machine code. And I'm quite certain this works because everybody made programming languages before LLVM existed. And that's what they did. They just generated machine code. Our development backends for Rock are not at feature parity with our LLVM one yet. Just seeing how much work is involved in that. Granted, like maybe for the Rust code base, it's a lot more work. I I get that. But like, for example, I know that there's this project called CraneLift, which is like a machine code generator for WebAssembly that Mozilla is working on. And there's a project to use an alternate backend instead of just using LLVM to use CraneLift, which makes sense because CraneLift is designed to like generate code a lot faster and that code doesn't run as fast as LLVM optimized code, which is fine. That's a good trade-off for WebAssembly. But again, it's like, why are we not going straight to machine code? Hmm. Why have sort of flexible backend that's like, not as slow as LLVM, but like still is not going straight to the, you know, <laughs> cutting to the chase. Rust has so much funding. Like this definitely could have been done years ago, but like nobody's even talking about starting on it. I don't get that. I don't understand why like nobody's, everyone's like, oh, it's, well, it's LLVM is real slow. So I guess that's the only, we're just stuck with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> meanwhile, like Golang, which generates machine code is just like, yeah, it's super fast. Weird. Like, <laughs> come on. And I think Go does its own linking or like, I, I don't think that Go invokes an external linker as far as I know. So that's something else that just can be done. I mean, and, and Go has CFFI as I understand it. So I don't know what they're doing for linking, but I, I don't think it's using the system linker or if it is somehow it's fast enough. The Rust compiler will let you pick a linker if you have one that's compatible. Yes. There's a couple options out there. We've tried that. We've tried using LLDB, which currently doesn't work on Mac OS very well, and Mold, which is like the new one from the... What I understand is uh, Rui is considered to be like the preeminent like linker expert. Like he wrote, I think, either Gold or LLDB, maybe both. And Mold is his new linker that's designed for speed. And it's like, it helps a little bit, but it's still fundamentally like pretty slow or at least for like our like compiler code base but like what, what we ended up doing when we made our own linker which also is like not feature complete in the sense that right now it only works on linux but it is like good enough that it is actually the default on linux like if you are running the rock compiler on a linux machine it's using our linker mm-hmm. and like there's a flag you can use to fall back on the old one like the system linker but we only know of like one use case where that's necessary and that's because there's some bug that we haven't you know, fixed yet. It's pretty obscure. And that just makes our linking times just go to basically zero. They don't even register on a flame graph anymore. And it's because our linker just uses a bunch of stuff that it knows about rock and about like what you're doing to like pre-do a bunch of work once. And then like when you're building your application, it only needs to do like a very, we call it the surgical linker because it just goes in and just like surgically changes like a couple of bytes around and like doesn't need to do a whole like linking process. And I have to imagine that for typical Rust use cases, something along those lines would be true. It's like, okay, we're going to link in like the Rust standard library. And then like all of these crates that we're building, we know what machine code we're generating for them. We don't need to be like, I don't know. I have no idea. This could be anything. You know, it's like, no, I know exactly what it is. I built all of it. (laughs) (laughs) And then like, just do a very minimal amount of linking. And then at the end, like maybe you need to like do something more complicated for like your CFFI, you know, libraries where you actually don't know what's in there. But again, I don't hear anyone talking about this and the rest. It's so 
mind boggling to me that like a language that's so oriented around performance is not attempting to solve the biggest performance bottlenecks like at all. Hmm, that is interesting. Uh, that ended up being like almost all of my Rust performance. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> I shouldn't have let myself get started. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So, so we talked about some of your favorite parts of Rust, which I agree with. Like, I, I also like those things about Rust a lot. I know I just like went on a big tangent about complaints I have about Rust, but overall, like Rust is definitely my favorite imperative programming language. Like, I'm I'm very happy to be using it for the raw compiler. I'm curious. Like, I don't know. Are, are there parts of it that you don't like? Do you have a similar rant about something that <laughs> bothers you about Rust while we're on the topic? Here's my rants about Rust compile times. No. <laughs> um, I think I've touched on them already. The things that like trip me up the most. And the number one thing is that behavior with closures, moving stuff into closures. Ah, yeah. That is the place where I get stuck the most. Not knowing I'll write the code as I, you know, my brain thinks it ought to be, still being very steeped in in LM and FP. Yeah. And then the bar checker will complain, and then I'll go, okay, I think I remember I need to, I'm inside the closure here, this is a reference, so I think I need to clone it because this closure is going to be called more than once. And that makes sense to me. And I do that, it still complains because the closure is actually being passed to something that Tokyo is doing. So it needs to be, so I need to go and I need to make the, the types that I'm working with send and sync. Hopefully that works and I can just add those. Hopefully it actually is send and sync. Usually it is, I haven't really run into that. And then uh, I need to come back and then wrap the thing in an arc. And then at that point, I'm like, okay, I've done all the, the thread stuff and now it's in an arc. And I know that arcs are cheap to clone, so I can just yep. move it into the closure and, and clone it. It still doesn't work. <laughs> it's still being moved in a way that the compiler thinks is inappropriate. So then I finally finish the task by making another variable, which is just, you know, if the variable is foo, it's, you know, I do foo underscore equals foo.clone, and then I pass foo underscore into the closure, and I clone it again, and it's good. <laughs> wow. That is the thing that I commonly struggle with, is uh, figuring out how to, how to get the closure to just use the variable. Right, right. That's so interesting that, like, for me, the biggest pain point would be compile times but like for you it sounds like i don't know if it, maybe compile times are still a bigger pain point for you but it sounds like a more top of mind at least pain point is closures i think an important difference is that i actually do very little async rust i did at some point that i actually was like it was just for like the file loading part of the compiler but everything else is like you know it's already being done on whatever thread and so there's not all that code is like centralized in one place and so most of the time i'm not touching it and so I don't actually do that much with like handing over closures to Tokyo, like the async runtime, you know, stuff like that. Usually if I want to use a closure and I'm running into problems like what you just described, and I know this technique would not work for you because you're using Tokyo, but like, I'll just turn it into a macro. I'll just be right, like, okay, yeah. just macroize that sucker and then it'll get inlined and it'll be fine and <laughs> everybody will be happy and we won't do any excess cloning or anything. But yeah, I mean, I definitely have had cases where even outside of, you know, async context where I'm like, I write it as a closure by default because that feels right to me. And like also the the error message quality with macros is definitely lower. Like if I write my own macro and then like something goes wrong, in, in some cases it's going to like, there's two problems there. One is it might be that something inside the macro is referencing something that like expects it to be there in the source code around it rather than like, I don't know how to explain this well. I, I wish I had a better like vocabulary for talking about macros, but it can reference stuff in the outside scope that's not where the macro was defined. I'm trying to avoid using the term lexical closures here because I don't want to define all that, but <laughs> it's definitely annoying. The ergonomics are better with a closure if I can get it to work, but there's some threshold where I'm like, I don't want to fight with this anymore. I'm just going to turn it into a macro and it's going to do what I want and maybe the error messages will be worse if, <laughs> if I mess up. But at least, I mean, uh, to Russ's credit, if I do mess up, it's going to give me an error. It's not like, you know, it, it's just going to do the wrong thing. Well, generally speaking, I guess if I, if I make a naming mistake, that could still happen, but I could like misuse a name and it's like, it happens to be that there's that name in scope, but it means something else. That'd be trouble, but <laughs> hasn't happened yet, but I, I suppose it could. Mm -hmm. We've talked about a lot of different topics. I don't know. Any other thoughts about like Rust and Elm and JavaScript and C sharp and comparing them? Yeah. I keep coming back to, it's important to use a language the way that it was designed to be used. For me, that, that was a process of like not treating a programming paradigm as like a, a moral value, you know, getting over that, that feeling. 
becoming comfortable with like, okay, well, Rust is an imperative language and it's meant to be used this way and it has all these nice features for using it that way. And, and it's, it's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a fight that is worth having. It's pointless. Totally agree. Then I think that actually that concept starts to go in, in other directions too. Like there are lots of ideas about UI frameworks for Rust right now. There are some that borrow from Elm to varying degrees. Definitely several. Yeah. <laughs> When I have had the opportunity to talk to somebody who's working on something like that, I actually try to encourage them to not do that. I feel the reason the, the Elm architecture is so effective is because it's the Elm architecture. Like the Elm language is what makes the architecture good. The constraints of the language, the, the way that it's all uh, pieced together, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So you, if you go and just take the, the architecture from, from the whole system and put it somewhere else, it's not going to be as good unless you have made, you know, something that is almost identical to Elm. That super resonates with me. I remember like when Evan was talking about like the, like coming up with the name Elm architecture, he was like, I want to come up with a name for this. And he ended up calling it the Elm architecture because he's like, I'm pretty sure if you have a language with like Elm's exact design constraints, this just falls out of that. It's just like what you end up wanting to do. But that goes both ways. It's not just that like, this is an architecture that's like associated with Elm. It's like, if you have different design constraints, you're probably going to end up wanting to do something different than this. <laughs> it's like, it's very coupled to like Elm's design that like makes it nice in the context of Elm and outside of Elm, maybe by some giant coincidence, it happens to be nice, but it's totally a coincidence. It's not that it's like innately good for every use case. It's that like, if Elm is your language, this lines up really well. Yeah. Even in rock, like which has, a pretty small number of like semantic differences to Elm, but actually a pretty big one when it comes to like what it compiles to, because like Elm compiles to JavaScript, like we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Rock does this like in-place mutation optimization, which has a pretty fundamental, makes a pretty fundamental difference in terms of like what data structures the standard library uses. I was looking into like for the editor plugins, what like UI system do we want to use? And of course I naturally started with Elm architecture and I pretty quickly found out like, there's going to be a bunch of problems with this, even just because of the differences between Rock and Elm. And I ended up designing something that was pretty different. Like it has a lot in common with, but it's like pretty fundamentally different from Elm architecture that like it's Rock better. And that makes sense because it's the Elm architecture. It's like if you, if you have a sufficient number of differences to Elm, it just like is not the right thing anymore. It's like you probably want something pretty different. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, Rust has this very controlled and structured way of doing mutability. And so you should use that in your... UI system, you should use mutability if you have access to it in a nice way. And the Elm architecture is intended, like immutability at the language level is a huge part of that. Yeah, totally agree. Embrace the imperative. Yes. I don't think it's a worthwhile endeavor to try to take a a framework from a language that is totally different from your own or from the language that you're using and then try to constrain the way that people are using that language so that it sticks to the principles of the architecture. Whatever the, the Rust architecture ends up being, I think it will be like fundamentally different from the Elm architecture in so many ways. Yeah, it'll be its own thing. You know, whatever emerges as the standard, I know it's like kind of in flux right now, but like it seems pretty likely that at some point something will emerge as like the most popular way to do things in Rust. And I, I agree. I think it'll look different than the most popular way of doing things in Elm. Yeah. Cool. So we have been experimenting with Bevy at work. And that's like a game programming framework, right? In Rust? It's a game engine, yeah. Yeah, okay. Specifically the ECS we're experimenting with. We're compiling it to WebAssembly and seeing if we can use it for a part of our product. So I've been hanging out in the Bevy Discord, just kind of, it's such an incredible open source project, just watching all these amazing people do their work, keeping up with developments. Early on, this this is uh, maybe a year ago at this point, there was some discussion of like a built-in UI framework for Bevy. Some of the early ideas were, let's try to take things from Elm. And so I thought, this is like the only like extremely minor contribution that I have, if you could even think of it that way, <laughs> to this project. But I, I jumped in and I was like, well, you know, I love Elm so much that I contributed to it for a number of years and organized conferences and stuff. And with Ellie. And with Ellie, yeah, all kinds of things. And I really insist that you consider, you know, not using Elm <laughs> for these ideas. Do your own thing. <laughs> yeah, this is Rust, and you have the, the tools and the structures that Rust gives you, and you don't have the, the constraints that Elm has. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm, and so what was the reception to that idea like? 
yeah, people got what I was, what I was getting at. And, um, I think I, you know, lended some credibility to it, establishing myself as a decidedly not an Elm hater. <laughs> of course. I don't know what the, the progress has been. I, I am really excited to see where they land. Nice. UI on top of an ECS is a really interesting problem to me, it seems. Hmm. What kind of challenges are there? At least for me, coming from Elm and React before that and what have you, I like to think of UI in a declarative way. The thing on the screen is a function of the state. ECS really kind of inverts that way of thinking where it's like very imperative. So I am sure that the, the folks who work on Bevy will be able to figure out a really nice API on top of that. But I, I am, I'm just really looking forward to seeing how they do it. It seems like a hard problem to solve to me. Cool. Well, I'll be interested to follow up and see how that uh, <laughs> turns out like in a few years, maybe. Yeah. Okay, cool. On that note, anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? So I work at a construction site, and we are building tools for the construction industry to do progress tracking. So the main thing that we that we build is um, a tool by which uh, you know somebody can take a, a 3D video camera and walk through their job site, and then upload that video to to our system. And then we have automated systems that will find the best images from that video and plot them on your floor plan by day, so that you have this documentation of your your site over time. And then we also do um, more in-depth tracking as well. So we can even get down to the level of tracking how much drywall is finished on a particular wall on your job. And it's, it's very exciting to be building tools for the construction industry. It's a relatively new space. So there are new product problems to be solving all the time, really challenging technical problems as well. I've been working at StructureSite for almost, almost two years. I have had something interesting to work on every single day. Nice. Yeah. Every day, every single day, I've been excited to, to get back to the, the thing that I'm working on. The team is growing. We're hiring. We use Rust. We use Elm. We uh, embrace new technology. We try things. We love types. <laughs> we deal with compile times in exchange for those types. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds familiar to me as someone who works at NoRed Inc. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, like types and Elm. <laughs> Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. I'm happy to do it. Uh, I've been listening for a while and really enjoying the podcast. It's it's uh, quite an honor to be invited on. Well, hey, now you're contributing to it and hopefully others enjoy this episode. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to do this again sometime. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, looking forward to it. Awesome. <laughs>